I came to a certain church to work as 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 the pastor once, and uh, as I got to know the church, one of the things I noticed was that in that church. Um, <clears throat> there were people who were taking communion who had never, ever been baptized. And there were people who were baptized who had never told any group of elders or pastors that they were under their care and that they wanted them to care for them. And that there were people who were taking the Lord's Supper who uh, had never even professed Jesus Christ. Uh, and that when people would leave and come at that church, and a couple hundred people had left in the couple of years before I came to that church, um, they were not acted on by the elders and thought over and prayed over and, and gone and talked to, but the secretary would just observe that they had been gone for a while and would simply remove their names from the membership list. Now let me ask you, in that church, is there any doctrine of the church? And you know the right answer is no. There's no doctrine of the church. Absolutely no doctrine of the church. If the secretary, just watching who shows up and doesn't, adds and, and, and subtracts people from the membership list, willy-nilly, where's the doctrine of the church? Now, at this point, you might say, well, are you saying that those people aren't Christians? Well, no, I'm not saying they aren't Christians. But here, right away, we engage something that in church history has been referred to in a number of different ways. And the way I want you to think about it is the distinction between the church visible and the church invisible. Now, likely, the vast majority of those people who were in that church belong to the church invisible. And by that, we mean all those who have been born again by the Spirit of God and who believe in Jesus Christ. All right. But were they a part of the church visible? Well, you might say, well, yeah, they were. You know, they took the Lord's Supper. And some of them had been baptized. Now, in the Bible, you never, ever find somebody taking the Lord's Supper who hasn't been baptized because baptism was the entry to the church. It would have been incomprehensible to anybody then that they would take the Lord's Supper without being baptized because the minute you believed, you were baptized. You remember that... Uh, that uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, as he had Isaiah 53 explained to him, he looked out and he saw a puddle or a lake or a pond or something, water. And he says, what's to keep me from being baptized right now? And you remember what happens. He's baptized. And so the idea of anybody eating with the people of God without being baptized is incomprehensible because people were baptized when they identified with the people of God. It was the initiation, right? Everybody knew it. But what's happened over a long period of time is that Christians have lost the doctrine of the church. We've lost the doctrine of the church. And it's become particularly problematic in the United States because in the United States... Uh, the focus on the church invisible or, you know, I'll use it two, two weeks in a row, the cosmic church. Okay. The, 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 the church of my heart all right, is combined with American political ideology, which is all about autonomous individuality. And so the image for evangelical Christians today is the image of one man or one woman alone with a Bible or alone with. A devotional book, my utmost for his highest. All right? 
and me and Jesus. And, and today I've noticed something I never heard when I was younger. I noticed people increasingly referring to what? My God. Now, if that were what was said right before the fire were lit under your feet and you burned for him, I'd love you. My Jesus, I love you. I know thou art mine. I love it. But when someone says, my God, today in conversation, more and more, what they're signaling to you is, uh, I have a particular take on this notion of divinity that I think you might be interested in. I read yesterday out loud to my family late at night in the kitchen, and they were very patient with me, an article from uh, a journal called... uh, Youth worker, it's not, that's not what it's called, I can't remember the name of it, um, written by Tony Campola's son. And the whole article is how he has brought his doctrine of God to Scripture, and where he finds it taught in Scripture, he believes Scripture is right. Where his doctrine is not taught in Scripture, he says, I make no bones about it. I will not worship a God that doesn't conform himself to my understanding of what a good God would be. And he says it over and over and over again. Now ask yourself this. What kind of doctrine of of the church does a man have who says, I have decided what is good. I have applied that goodness that I know in my heart, and I have no question about that goodness to God. Insofar as I find the Bible teaching what I have decided is goodness, that is the God I worship. And if that isn't the true God, I will go to hell. Because I will not give my worship to any God that does not conform to what I believe is good. What? That's like a verbatim quote, right? Verbatim. And it just goes on and on and on for about three and a half pages. Where's the doctrine of the church? It's very clear this man is a perfect product of evangelicalism insofar as evangelicalism is autonomous individualism, which has the conceit of knowing that whatever is his whim is right. And he will worship his God, my God. Listen for the words. You'll hear them again and again. My God. I remember when one of the main television commentators in our country a number of years ago was uh, issued a statement, I don't remember where, but he said, my God is not a God of wrath. My, bo- my God is bigger than that. My God is not a God of wrath. My God is bigger than that. What are you doing here two weeks in a row? The church visible and the church invisible. And so what uh, this uh, Tony Campolo's son, Bart, is claiming is that uh, he and God are buds, you know, and that they get along. And he he goes on and he says, you know, this God speaks to me all the time, and, and I know this God. Well, who's speaking to him? It's not God, it's devils, it's demons. But he doesn't have what? What doesn't he have? He doesn't have the church visible. Because the church visible would do what to Bart Campola? Well, it wouldn't start with kicking him out. It would have started years ago with teaching him, humbling him, 
loving him, having him over for meals. He's a covenant child. We would have cared for him. And when we saw these things starting, we would have rebuked him and said, no, Bart, you do not conform God to your image, but God conforms you to his image. Okay? And if he pursued it and pursued it and pursued it and pursued it, then ultimately, yes, you'd kick him out. He certainly would never eat at the Lord's table of this church. Never. Ever. And the reason is that this is a man who has not had the protection of the household of faith. And so you've got this tension between people saying, you know, I'm not going to answer to anybody for what I believe. I, me and Jesus, we get along. And don't you dare question it. How dare you insert a man, yourself, between a man and his God? Do you, do you understand that? And then you have the church. And the church has authority. And the church keeps watch over your soul as men who must give an account. And so the visible church elders who, you know them, Tim Wagner, he comes to you, he says, do this, don't do this. He's visible, the church visible. He approves somebody for membership, for baptism, for the Lord's Supper. You submit to Tim Wagner. You know, and you say, well, you know, but the Bible does say that when you pray, you should go into a closet. And I say, yeah, nobody's arguing against you having times alone with God. Every man will stand alone before God and give an account. But God has been pleased to use the church. Now, open up your Bibles to First Timothy and look at this. One of my favorite texts about the church, it's incidental, it's just sort of a throwaway comment made by the Apostle Paul in the middle of a letter to the young pastor Timothy who has his hands full in Ephesus. And in 1 Timothy 3, we have uh, a couple of labels attached to the church that I want us to notice. We're going to read verses 14 and 15. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself, what? In the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So what is the church? It is the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, the concept of family or household is basic to Scripture. And of all the different ways Scripture speaks of the people of God in the church, it says that we're the body of Christ. It says that we're the bride of Christ. It says the building of which Christ is the cornerstone is the church. The most common metaphor used in Scripture for the church is this family or household of God. It stands front and center in all of the Bible. In Hebrews 3, 6, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? In 1 Peter 2, 5, You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. For a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And when we think about the early church, as we see it particularly described for us at the beginning of the book of Acts, we can think of nothing that comes closer to modeling 
the sort of selflessness and vitality and unity and joy and love that there should be in a house, in a household. Where in Acts 2.47, those who believed were together and had all things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word household is frequently used to describe the church. Now, what does it mean for us today that the church is called the family of God or the household of faith? What are we referring to when we say the word church? Well, first, a couple of things we're not referring to. We're not referring to the physical church building, which so many people think of as the church. And that's one of the good things about us. You know, um, this morning in the early service, uh, the sermons are often very different because much of what you preach is what occurs to you to illustrate. This morning, though, I was thinking about uh, this building and I looked up and I, I saw this building. And then I remembered being in London and being at at, uh, at St. Paul's Cathedral. And one of the good things about, and I felt such relief when we moved into this gym. And the reason is, in my life as a pastor, so many people's souls have been put in jeopardy over buildings. The fights over buildings in churches are just sickening. Um... So I was looking up, you know, that screen's dignified. You know, thank goodness we have an American flag. And the God of Indiana. (laughs) You know, and nobody can be proud. We don't even own it. We rent it. And they're really sick of us and want us gone. So if the church is both visible and invisible, this gymnasium is a great help to us, isn't it? Because it makes us remember the invisibility of the church. Because nobody's getting attached to this gym. Although I will have to admit to you, I am. I love it. Because it disciplines the church into being a lean, mean fighting machine. You know, no fights in board meetings over who left the back door open. And let me tell you, that's that's what you fight about in board meetings. <clears throat> And then I think of uh, I think of St. Paul's. You know, you go in, and if I'm not mistaken, I don't know if the rule still stands. It might not, but it, it, for long, for centuries, there was a rule: no building could be higher than St. Paul's. It was the center of the state because it's a state church, the Anglican Cathedral, and. Uh, You go in it, and what? Immediately you're hit with gold. Gold everywhere. History everywhere. Incense everywhere. Candles everywhere. Priceless, priceless uh, handiwork. And you enter into the worship, and they don't have a band. They have an organ. Or Or to say it, an organ. And it growls. And they have a leader, a a, a priest, and he has vestments. You know? 
And when he pronounces the word God, it's eight syllables long. God. And what does that mean? Well, what it's doing is it's communicating to everybody there that he's a very sophisticated man. If they fought with America and we bombed Parliament, that would be better than if we bombed St. Paul's. The whole world would rise up if we bombed St. Paul's. Why? Because it's a church. Is it a church? Well, a week ago, one of the bishops of that Anglican state church said, publicly said, that newborn children should have a period of testing. And that during that time, if they were found to be severely defective, they should be killed. And he's a bishop of that church. Is that a church? No, it's not a church, is it? Why isn't it a church? Well, if you look at the text, the text says a little thing at the end. What? It says this about the church. It says, the church of the living God, what? It says, the pillar and support of the truth. Back at the time of the Reformation, Pastor Carell was telling us on Reformation Sunday what was true of the church at that time. The church was absolutely corrupt. If a man is selling indulgences, telling you that the minute this coin drops in the box, the soul springs clear of purgatory, that's corruption. Why was the corruption going on? You know, Rome would later say, well, you know, people got carried away. Did people get carried away? Huh? Well, yeah, they did. But why? Well, you know what was being built at the time? St. Peter's Basilica. How expensive was St. Peter's? Any of you been to St. Peter's? I haven't. Raise your hand. Tell us about St. Peter's. Anybody? David? <laughs> Colin says it kicks the snot out of St. Paul's. That's probably a pretty good description. Would you say, David Dodrell? Do they have a church? Now, I want to back out of that one. But I do want you to know, no, I do not believe the Roman Catholic Church is a church. I don't believe it. Does that mean that everybody that's in it is not a believer? No. But I don't believe it's a church. Why? Because it denies the essential truth of the gospel. To this day, it has not reversed the Council of Trent. What does the Council of Trent say? Read it. It's on the web. Now, you have to be careful when you read it because it's very sophisticated in how it says it. And if you care to research these things, hone in on imputation versus infusion. That's the center of the issue. The long and the short of it is, that Scripture teaches that we are saved by grace alone through faith. But not faith alone. In other words, faith always has good works. 
The Roman Catholic Church teaches that we are saved by having the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit change us to the point where we are. David, be precise. Tell us. Just say it. And so the Catholic view is that you take uh, the grace of God, you take Jesus Christ and his work, and, and you take the love of the believer for Jesus Christ, and it causes you to have infused in you, like you know the, the infuser that you use for tea, uh, until the tea permeates the water, and you become holy and worthy of heaven. The Protestant doctrine is that we are saved by the foreign, external, but applied to us, righteousness of Christ. His righteousness alone. And that we are never worthy of heaven. No matter how long you live, no matter how well you receive the word, no matter how much faith you apply to the word, you will never be saved by your righteousness, but by the foreign righteousness imputed to you. Do you understand the distinction between the two? Now you understand why Protestant churches are antinomian and Catholic churches are legalistic. Does that make sense? The Protestant churches all say, well, I don't have to be good because it's Christ's righteousness. Catholic churches say all there is is for me to be good (laughs) because they're saved by their goodness. You know, Roman Catholics in here would have a fit to hear me say this, but listen, make no mistake about this. The church was corrupt. It was corrupt in her practice. It was corrupt in her worship. In her worship, uh, the priests often couldn't even recite the Lord's Prayer. Okay? The priests were immoral. They had multiple women that they consorted with. Uh, it wasn't just money. It wasn't just St. Peter's. It was, it was corrupt. And so the Protestant reformers went back to Scripture and said, no, it is grace alone through faith that we have applied to us the external foreign righteousness of Jesus Christ, and Christ alone is our hope of heaven. All right? Guess what happened? The Roman Catholics said to the Protestants, they said, you're not the church. We're the church, and you are without hope eternally. Now you've got to respect them for now. What I despise today is Roman Catholics who look at me and say, well, we really believe the same thing. But I have a friend that runs a national ministry. We were talking on the phone one time. He has a radio program. And, and I, we were joking with each other and, and saying, you know, in order to deal with these evangelical and Catholics together, what we really ought to do is you should have me on your show. I will have you on my show. And you call me a heretic and I'll call you a heretic. And then we'll love one another. <laughs> do, you, do you understand? Today, everything's coying. Everything's like you and me, and, 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 and can't we all get along? You know? And so there's no truth. The Reformers and the Catholics had it out. Martin Luther's life was really on the line. It was all over who is the true church. And the Protestant Reformers said the true church has at its center truth. You know what the Catholics said? Yeah, we have the truth. And you know how we have the truth? Because we are the church. You know, it's kind of a circular argument. 
You know, we are the church. We have apostolic succession. God's been pleased to put the church, the truth in our church. If you cut yourself off from this church, you no longer have the truth. The Protestant reformers said no. Where there isn't the biblical preaching of the word of God, where there isn't the biblical administration of the sacraments, and some reformers added a third one, where there isn't the biblical exercise of church discipline. There is no church. We don't care how much gold you have. We don't care who you have painting pictures on the top of your chapels. Uh, We don't care uh, how you threaten us. We don't care if you kill us. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. But today, is there one of you that said that? Have I said that? You know? Have we ever felt the need to define the church and to stand on it, even if death takes us over? No. Because why? Well, because we're good evangelicals. We don't believe in the doctrine of the church. We believe in me and Jesus in a coffee cup. And our CCM music on our iPods. Cut off from the rest of the world. And that's not biblical. What does the Bible tell us about the church? Well, the Bible tells us about the church that the church gives us a name, that the church gives us food, that the church gives us protection, and that the church gives us love. It gives us a name. What is your name? Christian. You are a Christian. How do you get your name? When you believe, you are what? You become, when you believe, you become... uh, This morning I got up and went down in our kitchen and there was a little boy there that obviously didn't belong to us. He was a different color and he had really kinky hair and a different temperament. Certainly not Doug's temperament, my son-in-law. Maybe a little bit of me and Heather, but... um, he was obviously from a different continent and a different hemisphere. But you know what? That's my son-in-law, Doug Ummel, and he's an Ummel. Why? Because his father and mother adopted him. And the day may come when he says, I am not your son. I want to go back to my people. And his father will look at him and say, give it up, kid. You're my son. Now shut up and eat. And that'll be the dignity of the father and the dignity of the son to be treated like a son. The book of Hebrews tells us that God is particularly treating us like sons when he says, shut up and eat. When he disciplines us. (laughs) And you know what? Even you who are women are sons of God. You're not daughters of God. Now, yeah, you are daughters of God. But you know something? You're sons of God. You know why that's important? It's because you get a male inheritance from God. God is saying that you're not going to get a second-hand inheritance. Human families, the oldest son was supposed to care for the whole family when the father died. And so he got the largest inheritance. What the Bible's telling you is you will get the largest inheritance. That when you're adopted by God, you become a son of God, even though you're a woman. And so do you have a name? Yes, you're Christian. You know what the Bible tells us in in the book of Revelation? It tells us that the day will come when we in heaven will what? We will have what? Come on. You guys love to get your new uniforms on the basketball team. Okay? Everybody takes them out of the plastic, puts them on, and they have what? The name of the team. 
You know, you go, Meryl and I have made the mistake of going to Indy right after a Colts game, being almost oblivious to these things. And guess what? The entire downtown, everywhere you go, of Indianapolis is filled. Now, come on, Brandon. Just chill out. Brandon has still not caught the fever. He's living in a delusional world. The entire downtown of Indianapolis is filled with what? Jerseys with what number on them? They all are 18. I hate to tell you, they're all 18. When we get to heaven, the Bible tells us that we will have Jesus' name written on our forehead. Wouldn't that solve a lot of things if you went into work and you were branded Jesus? Well, for me it would. You know, Harry Myers says that uh, people always think that the reason a man becomes a bishop is that he's so holy that he's finally, you know, to the point where he can hold that position. He says, hasn't it ever occurred to you that the Holy Spirit works in a different way? The Holy Spirit takes a man that will never, ever be godly unless he has to walk around wearing a collar. And that's the man who's made the bishop. (laughs) So we get a name, don't we? And the name is Christian. We're adopted sons of God. And Jesus Christ is our brother. Do we get food? What was the time, other than the crucifixion, when the largest number of disciples left Jesus? Do you remember? Jesus talked about the food in the wilderness, the manna. And he said what? Well, if you look, if you look at... um, Give me a second and I'll get there. John chapter 6, look at verse 27. It says this, it says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, that as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So they want a big, big, big sign. You know, like Sandy Patty and smoke coming out of the stage. You know, they want a big sign, right? Okay? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 32, It is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. So, you know, he talks about the manna, and then he says, but it's my Father. And then he puts the little word true bread. Well, then you're thinking, yeah, it's not wonder bread. It's Catherine Clark, you know, nine grain. You know, it's true bread. You know, it has some of the nutrients, not just the white bleached flour, right? For the bread of God is that which came, comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, what? I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. 
you know, I am wrong. It's not until later. Look at verse. Uh, uh, look at verse 53, and it, it gets even more intense, and that's where they leave him. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, because they keep going back and forth, bread, bread. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And so do we get food? Yes, we do. We get food at the Lord's table. We get food through faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit protects us and gives us life through the body and blood of our Lord. He is our righteousness. He is our sin offering. He is the Lamb of God whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. When we drink His blood, we have life. And you say, yep, transubstantiation is right. It really is the blood. And I say, you're right, it really is the blood. And you need to hear with spiritual ears. We have a name. We have food. And we have protection. A man's home is his castle, his place of most secure refuge. And so God's home is a place of refuge, secure from dangers and snares which seek to devour us. In John 10, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. And then he goes on and says he is the good shepherd, and he's a good shepherd because he protects us. And you think, if an evangelical is sitting alone with a coffee cup, nice frilly curtains in a window of a kitchen, all right, and they're reading Josh Campola, do they have a shepherd? And you would say, well, yeah, Jesus is their shepherd. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. But did you notice where Jesus said that he would protect you? Jesus said he would protect you in the flock and in the sheepfold. So what is the flock and the sheepfold? I mean, it must not only matter that Jesus says he's the good shepherd. I mean, we all apply that to people that have leadership over us and say, you're not a good shepherd, you're a hireling. The word hireling has negative connotations in the English language, right? Why? Well, because it's understood that it's a man that takes the money to be a pastor but doesn't ever protect you from anything, right? So what's the point with shepherd? What's the point? Well, the point is that a shepherd gathers a flock. And either you're in the flock or you're out of the flock. And if you're out of the flock, the shepherd says, hey, it's cool, he's doing his thing. Right? A little bit of American individuality. He's off with his iPod. You know, he's got the plugs in his ear and he's listening to his own. He's, you know, he's, you know, dancing to a different song. Right? Right? Is that what the shepherd does when the sheep leaves the flock? What does the shepherd do? The good shepherd. The bad shepherd says, hey, hey, one less. And the reason he's happy to have one less is because every sheep is a pain and requires work. Kierkegaard says, I'd like to do an experiment. I'd like to take all the preachers in our state church 
and make a little agreement with them, which is that they can keep having their livings and their buildings and everything can be exactly the way it is, but only one thing will be changed, and that is there will be no sheep. And he says, I'd like to know, is there one of them that wouldn't take my bargain? Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. Jesus says that when the lost lamb goes out, that the good shepherd goes out and finds him and brings him, what? Back to the flock. And so you look at this text and you love the fact that Jesus is a good shepherd and that gives us the name of this church, you know, Christ our good shepherd. And we think, again, doesn't that mean that you have to be under the care of a shepherd in the flock to be safe? And yet we still have this image of, you know, me alone with Jesus, you know, sitting with frilly curtains, reading my Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest. And you say, well, are you saying there's something wrong with my utmost for his highest? No, there are some idols that I won't touch. No, I'm actually not. I'm actually not saying there's anything wrong with that book at all. But my point is, come on, you guys. What does Jesus want from us? Does he want us to have a good devotional life? with our frilly curtains and our iPod in our ears? Do you really think you're safe off with your Jesus? Look what it got Josh Campola. Is he safe? We get a name, we get food, and we get protection. And God has been pleased to give us shepherds. That's what I am. I'm a shepherd. You know? I'm bad at it. I work hard at it. Yesterday, David and I left at, what, 11 in the morning, got back at 11 at night, and spent that entire time uh, working with the shepherds of another church, trying to get them to be faithful shepherds. Faithful shepherds. Not putting their own interests above the interests of the flock. Trying to get them to protect their faithful shepherd. Does it matter? If it doesn't, David and I are really dingbats because I missed the IU soccer game. And even though we lost, I would have liked to have been there. He gives us a name. He gives us food. He gives us protection. And don't ever forget that the Bible says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. This is why we require you to be a member of this church or another Bible-believing church to come to the Lord's table. Because that's the way that we test whether or not you are submitted to shepherds. And that's the most scandalous thing about this church. There have been more offense caused to people because of that than anything else we do. But it's good. Because it's our way of teaching you that if you don't have the protection of the church of Jesus Christ, you may not come to the table. And that's what we do because Christ requires us of us. And then finally, we get love. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. 
the name which you have given me, that they may be one, as in as we are one. If everything is a matter of individualism and we're all alone and we can all have our own relationship directly with God, why would he pray that we be one? You know, it just doesn't make any sense. Do you understand? Now, let me ask you a question, and, and this will be the end, but it will take a couple of minutes. Um, if you look at the end of our text... He says, so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, the church of the living God, what? The pillar and support of the truth. If a church has shepherds who say that they'll guard you, if it has the sacrament, if it has baptism in the Lord's Supper, if it has the name Christian on it, you know, you know Bloomington Christian Church, if it has a building, if it has Bibles, if it has worship service, if it has everything, but it does not have truth, is it a true church? And you say, well, which truth? And I say, that's a good question. Well, like, for instance, the truth that um, women shouldn't wear jewelry. And you say, well... I wear jewelry. And I say, oh, okay, well, that, you're a Christian, so I guess we won't. And I'm playing with you because I'm saying, of course, we all would have debates over what women should wear jewelry. Some women here have braided hair. You can find a text that says, don't let your adornment be that of your body. You know, don't braid your hair, you know, but rather have it be your spirit. So the question is, should women braid their hair? All right. What about men who pray with hands at their sides and not lifted. You know, does that mean they're Christians? You know, okay, so there's no end to things that we can argue about that Scripture says. Some people can think this, some people can think that. This is what we refer to as non-essentials. All right? And you argue about what are essentials and non-essentials. Fine. All those arguments that churches have, whether you should wear denim skirts and have hair down to here and it shouldn't be braided, Right? We can argue about that, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying, is there a church if there is not the truth of Scripture? You say, which truth? I say, how about the truth of Jesus Christ? How about the truth that it is the righteousness of Christ that brings us to heaven and not our own righteousness? Even if that righteousness is inspired by Christ. And you say, well, I don't really want to say that Roman Catholics are bad. Some of my best friends are Roman Catholics. A number of the people I know are believers, true believers, believe only in the righteousness of Christ, but they go to the Roman... Some of my relatives are Roman Catholic. And I say, okay, since you have relatives who are Roman Catholics, we'll set that doctrine aside. You know, because I wouldn't want to make you make a decision between you and your loved ones, right? I mean, that's just nasty, right? Okay. So could you come up with a truth that's foundational to Scripture that you're willing to say has to be in a church. Could you come up with one? And you say, well, how about the truth that at some point in a worship service we should stand? That's a pretty safe one, isn't it? You live in a day when you're never ever supposed to say that anybody is wrong. Can't we all get along? But if we celebrate Reformation Sunday and we believe that the Reformers were used by God to bring biblical Christianity back, that Rome had become decadent, 
What is the point of having that celebration if you don't believe today that you need to still be reforming the church? And that's where it gets very difficult for us because we really don't want reform in our own time. <laughs> we want reform a couple centuries removed where we can go out and lay, lay garlands on the tombs of dead prophets and then kill the living ones. Okay, so where am I headed? I'm obviously rattling the saber. Here's where I'm headed. In the 1950s, there was a conflict between two men, two titans of the faith. Both men knew God, knew his word, and were faithful preachers of his word. One of them was an upstart American who William Randolph Hearst had told the L.A. Times to puff. And he was done puffed. And his ministry exploded. And he became the hep dude of America. All right. He went around the country and he had the pizzazz of North Carolina, handsome, rugged sort of southern good looks and something that's only second to a British accent or a Scottish accent, namely a southern accent. His words came out with melodious. And when he preached, people were saved. They just flooded the aisles and he decided he was going to have a crusade in London. And he got to London and he met another titan. And this was a man who had been the physician he had been the assistant to the physician to the queen. He had been a doctor, and he had been one removed from caring for the queen. And then the Lord had called him to the ministry, and he had humbled himself and gone out to a little Welsh harbor town called Sandilands. And the first thing he would had to do is he would had to heat his building the first year by taking sledgehammers to the stage that had been erected in the church so that the church could survive. They put on dra dramatic things in his church. And the, 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 the vestrymen, the deacons, the elders, whatever you want to call them, said to him, what are we supposed to do with this stage? And he said, break it up and we'll use it to heat the church for the first year. How do you think that went over? And he preached his guts out. And he preached the word. Many years later, he was called up to London, to Westminster. And he was the assistant to G. Campbell Morgan for a time. And then he became the preacher at Westminster. And so Billy Graham came to London to have his crusade. And Billy Graham came to meet with Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he said to Martin Lloyd-Jones, I want you to approve of my crusades. I want you to support them. I want to make you visible. No doubt that Martin Lloyd-Jones was the most visible and respected evangelical in that city. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I'd love to support you. I'd love to be a part of your crusade. Only one thing is necessary. And that is that you will stop taking non-Christian, unbelievable, uh, uh, rejecting the biblical doctrines, rejecting the substitution, that you will take the spiritual leaders that you have on your platform as you lead this service off if they do not believe in Jesus Christ. And Billy Graham said what? He said, no deal. And Billy Graham made the decision right there that he was going to make common cause with unbelievers, that he was going to put them on the platform, that they were going to give legitimacy to his crusades. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, with great grief, would not be a part of the Billy Graham crusades in London. And all of evangelicalism says that Martin Lloyd-Jones was wrong. Not me. Not me. Martin Lloyd-Jones was absolutely right. And I grew up in that generation. My parents went to Wheaton with Billy Graham. They knew Ruth Bell back when she was dating Harold Lenzel. 
She wasn't always Mrs. Graham. Mary Lee's parents were there. And all evangelicalism was just full of itself. And we started all these organizations. And they were that. They were organizations. They weren't churches. But it was an entrepreneurial time. And American capital and post-Second World War and just the wealth and the everything. It just grew and it grew and it grew. And the numbers were extraordinary. And the buses waited. And Decision Magazine was in every home. And if you went into the Deep South, you saw pictures of, you know, Martin Luther King and pictures of John F. Kennedy and often pictures of Billy Graham. We had a a triad, you know, and the musicians tell me we like them. My pastor of my home church, Kent Hughes, sent me an email one day. He'd been reading a book and he found my father in a footnote. It turns out it was a letter to the editor that my dad wrote in the 50s to Christianity Today, where my dad made this point. My dad said if Jesus Christ had converts, he didn't send them back to the Pharisees to be discipled. And he was talking about his friend, Billy Graham. Did you know Billy Graham did that? Do you know that he sent his converts back to churches that had no biblical doctrine for them to be discipled? Why? He had to. He had them on the platform. How could he say, well, you're good enough to sit on the platform and give me legitimacy, but I'm not going to send any of my converts to you to be discipled. Do you understand this? Does Billy Graham believe in the church? Oh, yeah. You say when he went to London, he tried to get the church to support him. The church had its chance. You see... You have to make a decision whether you believe in the church. And you know what has become precious to me as I've read the autobiography or the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones is a little statement that Jesus made where he said to all the Christians of his time, but they weren't Christians back then, they were Jews. But he said to them, he said this, he said, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Now, am I saying Billy Graham isn't a Christian? No, I praise God for Billy Graham. Thank God that Billy Graham has not made shipwreck of his marriage in the eyes of the world. I thank God that he put himself under the discipline of men and how much money he earned. I thank God that his testimony is he's never had lunch or dinner or any meal alone with a woman other than his wife. He's never ridden in a car alone with a woman other than his wife. There's much good about Billy Graham. But you know something? Many of you are Baptists and I believe in infant baptism. So obviously, either you have a glaring error or I have a glaring error. You see, every one of our leaders has some tragic flaw that reminds us that God is the only one who can be worshipped. Even Billy Graham! Billy Graham made a terrible mistake. You say, well, you don't think Martin Lloyd-Jones made a mistake. Yeah, Martin Lloyd-Jones was just like Billy Graham. Martin Lloyd-Jones did not spend time raising up elders in his church. Do you know what Martin Lloyd-Jones' church is like now in London? It's just awful. And it happened almost immediately after he, after he left the pastorate. The church is the pillar and foundation of God's truth. And if you will not submit yourself to the church, God 
is pleased to not have you receive his truth. Do you know that St. Cyprian, and then he was echoed by Calvin, and I echo it constantly today, they all, we all say this, he who will not have the church as his mother may not have God as his father. You may not have the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and God. Now, you may have a church and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and God. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Association is not the church. It is not. And when you sit alone and you have a Bible and open in front of you, and you think that you can dispense with the pastor, God says no. Because God has given me the privilege of preaching to you. And the Bible says, how will they come to believe in one whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless somebody tells them? And then it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And when that guy was out in the middle of the desert... And he had the evangelical version of the Gospel of John, namely Isaiah 53, and he's reading it. God sent him a preacher. So don't be proud. As I said to one of you this last week, you still, you've been here years, you're still not willing to eat out of my hand. Would you please be willing to eat out of my hand? You say, no! You know, you're nasty. I say, yes, I know that. Do you have a problem with God using men with feet of clay? Do you have a problem with that? You're too proud to eat out of the hand of a disgusting, bad breath sinner? You have a problem with that? God could have sent you an angel, but he didn't. I have a problem with it. Every time I get in the pulpit, I have a problem with it. Why didn't God send an angel? Why can't I just have it branded on my head, Jesus? It would make it so much easier. The church is the household of faith. It is the church of the living God. It is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Father, we thank you.